Amen. Isn't God good? Amen. You know, we serve an awesome God and a mighty God. I got a couple of quick things I wanted to share with you, um, just by, uh, by way of uh, business kind of things. Um, you know, on any given Sunday in Texas, 10% of our Baptist churches don't have pastors. There's about 500 Baptist churches in Texas. Now, you know, if men were stepping up and, and doing their responsible thing, they'd be pastoring some of these churches. And um, I'm very excited because one of my sons has uh, surrendered to the ministry. And um, he's taken a church in Pendleton, just north of town. And um, they've called for his ordination. And so what we would like to do because of our involvement with him and because we know him and, and he's, been, he's served here, uh, we would like to ordain him next Sunday morning uh, during our worship time. And uh, it's Nathan Adams, his wife is Ashley, and they'll both be here. But uh, Tom Henderson, our director of missions, will also be here speaking and giving the charge to the candidate. I didn't think it would be appropriate necessarily for me to give the charge of the, to the candidate. But uh, I wanted uh, Tom Henderson to be a part of that. And I hope that you will come and participate in that as well. We're having an ordination council on Saturday uh, afternoon, uh, I believe from 4 to 6. And uh, it, you're welcome to, to come and be a part of that. And then also we have um, um, that Sunday after church comes the good part. We want to participate in some barbecue eating. And uh, the... the uh, Part of that has to do with you bringing the barbecue, okay? So we will all participate in that, but bring your favorite barbecue or cook something up, bring uh, side dishes for barbecue or desserts, whatever you want to bring. Um, we're going to put it on the table and we're going to eat it together. And uh, there'll be some representatives here from Pendleton Baptist Church. So I would like it if we didn't run out of food, but I would also like it if you brought barbecue and then stuck around and enjoyed it with us. So that's next Sunday after church, okay? Um, the following Sunday is the uh, fundraiser luncheon, and that Sunday I want you to bring your checkbook. Amen. Yeah. But, um, so we can raise some money for missions. But, you know, uh, we want to fellowship uh, together. We want to we uh, uh, honor the Lord. We want to ordain uh, Nathan and, and um, see him uh, in his ministry there. But, uh, you know, God is at work, and he's doing a great work among us. So uh, come and be a part of that. Also, um, the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Let me just say a quick word about that. We will be receiving this for the next month, okay? For the next four weeks, we will be receiving this offering. On Easter Sunday, we're going to have a special time in our service uh, that we can give. And uh, I hope that you will help us reach our goal of uh, 4017 And that is um, uh, money that goes to, to help with missions right here in North America. And so uh, what a blessing it is to be a part of that Annie Armstrong uh, Easter offering. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Loving Father, we thank you for all that you are. <laughs> Lord Jesus... We are so very, very thankful for the fact that you died for us to be our Savior, to be our Lord. When we couldn't help ourselves, you, you gave your life for us, for our sin. 
Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit, even now in this moment as we look into your word, Father, that your Holy Spirit would come and convict us of the sin in our lives. Father, we look into your word and it's like looking into a mirror and we see the things, the imperfections that need to be changed. So, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would have his way in each one of our hearts. Father, I pray for a time of great repentance falling upon the churches in this nation. I pray, Father, for a great repentance upon the hearts of the believers. I ask, Father, that you would lead us and guide us into all truth. Father, what a, what a blessing you are to us. Guide us as we look at your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're going to continue on this morning in our um, uh, series on Abraham. And if you have your Bible and would open it up to chapter 18, um, we're going to read some verses there in just a moment. You know, Adrian Rogers, uh, longtime pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church, he, he said this. He said, God told Abraham that he was going to have a son in his old age. And he quizzically asked about it in Genesis 18, 14, God Ask Abraham, he said, is there anything too hard, too difficult for the Lord? Is there anything too difficult for the Lord? And then over in Jeremiah, uh, uh, he gives the answer to that. It says, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? We have a God that can do anything. We have a God that loves us. We have a God that, that works on our behalf. We have a God that, that, that cares and loves us so very, very much. Is there anything that is too difficult for God? See, there's no promise that's too hard for God to keep. There's over 30,000 promises in the Bible. 30,000. And God will keep his word. If God made the promise, he cannot lie. There's no promise too hard for God to keep. And there's no prayer too hard for God to answer. Now Jesus said in Matthew 21, verse 22, he said, And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. All things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. When you ask in prayer and believe, you're going to receive it. Now, I, I think this is huge because there's no problem that's too hard for our God. None. I mean, God specializes in things that are impossible. He loves to show his name as great. See, now God may not solve your problem the way you want him to. But there's no problem that's too hard for God to solve. I would add this. There's no person that's too hard for God to save. God can save anyone if they will come to him. You know, sometimes people have what I want to call an unreasonable mindset. They're not thinking this through. I mean, if you have an unreasonable mindset, you can use silly, superficial excuses and say no to God. Some people might say something like this. Well, I'm not going to go to church because my mom made me go to church when I was a kid. I think, you know, my mom used to make me take a bath when I was a kid. Does that mean I'm not going to take any more baths? 
you better hope not. You know, or, or, well, there's hypocrites in the church. I mean, some lawyers are shysters, present company excluded. Some doctors are quacks, and some money is counterfeit. But if you need a lawyer or if you need a doctor, you go find one. And I just really believe that you haven't gotten rid of all your money just because some of it's fake. You don't burn it in the, in the, in the, in the dumpster because it's, it's fake. You hang on to it. Now, some people would say things like, I'd like to be a Christian, but there's just so much to give up. You know what? That's like saying, I really want to be healed, but I don't want to give up my cancer. See, the only thing God would ask you to give up are the things that are bad for you. Things that will hurt you. In our text this morning, we've, uh, it's been described as God's soliloquy. God's soliloquy. Uh, you know, I, I entitled this sermon, When God Talks to Himself. Because in our passage, it seems that way, that He is asking Himself a question. And God is pictured as being perplexed regarding what He should do about a situation that brought agony to His heart. I mean, the Lord's soliloquy here is reported so that the reader, so that we might understand what follows. The conversation that God has between himself and Abraham is something we need to understand. And so when we, when we look at this, we understand that, that God is asking this question so that he can show that Abraham is just and righteous. I think this is huge. Abraham must do what is just what is righteous, and he must teach his children the same. Folks, that's a huge statement for every one of us. We need to teach our children what is right. Amen. Not right in society's eyes, but right according to God's word. See, the conversation that... Abraham will have with Yahweh will demonstrate the extent to which Abraham is a righteous man. And we hopefully can draw some conclusions from this conversation and from God's experience with Abraham. Read with me. I'm gonna, it's, it's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but it, it'll go by quick. Um, Genesis 18, I want to begin in verse 16 and following. It says this, it says, then the men rose up from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him... So that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. And their sin is in exceedingly grave 
I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall, you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abram replied, Now, behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of 10. As soon as he finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. You know, after eating at what I want to call Abe's Roadhouse. You remember he slaughtered the calf and fed him and, and, and took good care of these men. Well, after, after the Lord had eaten there, uh, Abraham and the three men went off for a walk to, let's say, walk off their meal. But notice that Abraham didn't just wave goodbye to the visitors. He walked with them for a while, it says, to send them off. It was during this time that Abraham learned about Sodom and what was going on there. If he hadn't taken the time to walk with them, he would have never had the opportunity to understand God's purposes and his plans. There's a simple principle here. You may want to write this down. If we don't make time to spend with the Lord... We will not understand his ways and will be confused in our thinking about him. If we want to walk with the Lord, then we have to spend time with the Lord. I mean, we can't build a relationship with God on the fly. It just doesn't work that way. You can't just grab it and go. You have to spend some time with the Lord. If we're going to attempt to understand God's ways, we need to make time for it. Because we are in such a rush in everything that we do. We gulp down our food many times without even giving thanks. We, we grab things and we're on the move and we're going. And, and, and our society 
Our society believes that busyness is godliness. But it's not. It's not how busy you are. But that's what our society values. Oh, I'm so busy. I used to have people tell me that all the time when I was uh, in in the, the food industry. You know, I'd come into work and they'd say, Man, Ridge, we're just so busy. It's like, well, what did you get done? Don't tell me how busy you are. Tell me what you got done. Because you see, there's work to be done. But we're so busy. We need to slow down and we need to spend some time with God Almighty. Sitting at his feet. If we're going to know his ways, if we're going to know his plans, then we've got to spend some time. You see, when we make time to be with the Lord, he's going to reveal his plans for us. He's going to reveal what he's about to do. That's what we see in this passage. Abraham spending time with the Lord. You see, this experience in Abraham's life reveals that God will indeed reveal to his people what is going to happen. Unless changes are made in the direction that cities and nations are headed. Think about this. Utter destruction is planned for Sodom. Had Abraham not gotten up and spent some time with the Lord, he would have never found out what God was going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. But in this situation, he spends time with the Lord and the Lord reveals his plan to Abraham so that he would know what is about to happen. You know, the case of Nineveh and Jonah illustrate that entire cities can make great changes. Great nations can make changes and, and turn the course of events. You see, God examines the moral condition of nations, of cities, and I want to say of churches. Because nothing... Absolutely nothing is hidden from God. We think that we can do that. We think that he doesn't see us. We think that he doesn't know. Nothing can be hidden from God. He is indeed the God of love. Oh, and he loves us so much. He loves us so well. But he's also the God of justice and righteousness. He cannot tolerate sin. You know, Ruth Graham, she, she's been quoted as saying that if God lets America escape from his judgment on unbelief and immorality and wickedness, then on judgment day he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, maybe this is an overstatement, but it does speak of a side of God's nature that we need to be reminded of repeatedly. I mean, Jesus talked about this in, in, a, in a passage. He, he talked about this passage in Luke chapter 17. I want to read a few verses out of that. He, and, and he's talking about this passage in reference, what's going on in this passage, in reference to his second coming. We need to hone in on this. Verse 22, and he, he's talking to his disciples, and it says, And he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, Look there and look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. 
But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. And on the day that Lot went out of, from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed, and one will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. That is a terrible and awesome day of the Lord. He returns. We see this. Jesus talking about it. It's the Son of Man returning. The days of Noah when, when he destroyed uh, all of humanity. The, the days of Lot when fire and brimstone fell upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. That gave me pause to ask the question, well, what about the days of Lot? What does that look like? What is he talking about? The days of Lot. Let's review the days of Lot. Because they were engaging in business as usual. First of all, I would say there was a general acceptance of the homosexual lifestyle. A general acceptance by the general population. In the days of Lot, homosexuals had become aggressive in the pursuit of their lifestyles. We see them openly in chapter 19 in the streets trying to forcibly rape the angels who were guests of Lot. They're pushing that upon visitors to their city. They're pushing that upon righteous individuals. They're push, pushing that on the angels that came to visit the city. They're unashamed of their sexual behavior, and they were ready to aggressively attack Lot for trying to stop them. You need to understand something, and you need to hear my heart, and you need to not hear what I'm not saying. I desire the salvation of all people. Jesus loves us, and he died for us. He gave his lifeblood on Calvary for us, for all of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his only begotten, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. But according to God's word, I cannot accept the lifestyle as anything other than sinful, the, the, the gay lifestyle, as anything other than sinful according to, to God's word and in the sight of God. 
As we look at the wickedness in our nation today, we realize that we have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And the time has come for God's judgment to fall because of our wickedness. I mean, throughout the whole Bible, God tells us that the great day of judgment and God's wrath is coming to the earth. You know, the question's often been debated as to whether or not the church will be here to face the wrath of God and his judgment of this sinful world. So the question that Abraham asks of God, it still stands in verse 23. He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Should not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Should he not be fair about it? <laughs> I think this is huge. See, as long as there are righteous people on the earth, the hand of God's judgment will be stayed. But the judgment must come. The judgment must come. So God, one day very soon, in an event known as the rapture of the church, He will remove the righteous out of the earth and then the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, against all ungodliness, and against those who held the truth of God in unrighteousness. They knew it, and they held it anyway. They held to their wicked ways. See, I expect that the anti-Christian sentiment and persecution will continue to grow here in the United States as people continue to silence our voices. The media will seek to portray us as hate mongers. And we will be accused as being intolerant. But folks, the laws of man cannot erase the laws of God. Amen. We are merely created beings. He has ultimate authority. And we must submit to his authority, not to our own. You see, sin is sin. And the Bible warns us that the wicked will be cast into hell. I want to say, along with the nations, that forget God. But listen, our ministry is not motivated by hate. It's motivated by love. And I say that because if I hated others, I would keep silent. And then I would gloat over the fact that many are going to spend an eternity in hell. But it's the love of Christ that constrains me to warn them even though they turn their wrath upon me. And the day that I cease to warn people about the coming wrath of God, about the consequences of sin, is the day that I no longer belong in the pulpit. You don't want a preacher that brings a watered-down gospel.
Okay, I'm going to get off my soapbox and move on. God is open to sincere and earnest prayers of intercession. We see that in this passage, verse 22 and 23. See, in this experience of Abraham's life that reveals one of the most dramatic pictures that we have of intercessory prayer. We find Abraham earnestly pouring his heart out to God and pleading for the lives of the people who live in Sodom. He's pleading over them. He's saying, Lord, if there's, if there's just 20, if there's just 10, he's like a reverse auctioneer. He's coming down the line and he gets down and, and, and he says, Lord, if there's 10 people, will you spare the city? He says, if there's 10 righteous people in that city, I will spare the city. See, in his willingness as an intercessor, Abraham is like Jesus. He's like Jesus because the greatest intercessor of all time is Jesus Christ. I mean, he is interceding even now at the right hand of the Father for you and for me, for those of us uh, and, and, and those of our families who don't know Jesus. He's interceding for us. God, give them one more day. God, give them another hour. God, if we can, if we can stave off this, this wrath, let more come to you. But you see the urgency of the hour and we as believers are lulled to sleep by our society, by our affluence, by all of the things that we have around us, by all of those shiny objects. And we care more about that truck. We care more about that home. We care more about the stuff than we do about the brothers and sisters who are dying and going to hell. We see Abraham, his heart is breaking for the people who live in Sodom. He's saying, God, if there's, if there's 10, if there's 20, if there's 30. You see, every Christian can know that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now. Interceding. He prays exactly for the right things for us. He prays that we would be Kept from being trapped by the enemy. You know the devil. He just wants to put you in chains. He wants you addicted. He wants you uh, in chains to all sorts of things. Because then he can control you. So Jesus intercedes so that we would be keep, keep from being trapped by Satan. But he also prays that we would be kept in unity. See, that's one of the devil's plans, is to divide them and conquer them. But as long as we stay together in unity, he's got no part of that. He also prays that our faith would continue. And one of the reasons why we as Christians survive at all is because we have a great intercessor. I mean, his, his intercession is done for the church as well because the church is his bride. He's praying for his bride that we would be made one, that we would be without spot and without blemish, and we keep inviting the world to come in and be a part of what he desires to be pure and holy. It's like we want to drag our garbage with us. He prays for us. And by his spirit, he leads us to pray for one another. And praying for others is one of the greatest things that you could do. One of the greatest things you could ever do is to pray for someone else. 
See, prayer is one of those most unselfish things that you can do. Because it's not about you. You're praying for someone else. Abraham is never more like God than he is that moment when he's praying for Sodom. I mean, his prayer didn't save the city. The city in the end got destroyed. And it was never intended to. But it did make Abraham show the mercy and the compassion of God in his own life. I think that's big. We need to show the mercy and the compassion of God in our own life. When Abraham began to pray for that city that was lost, he showed God's compassion and he showed his mercy in his life. I believe this is why God asks us to pray. That we might take upon ourselves some of his own character. But notice how in this passage a minority, just a few people, empowered by God, has a preserving power. A few people empowered by God has you know, a, a preserving power on society. I mean, God was willing to spare the city of Sodom if only ten people could be found there. Ten would provide the basis of hope for the entire city. If there were ten people who would band together and seek to bring about spiritual and moral change, then there was hope for the whole group. This reveals that the wicked are benefited by the presence of righteous people. See, Abraham bargained all the way down to 10. But I want you to see something here. Notice that God exceeds his requests and delivers the four who qualify anyway. There wasn't 10 righteous. And because of that, they all deserve to die. But God rescued those four that were righteous out of that. He took them out. So, and then he poured his wrath out upon the city. I think that's big stuff. Because God's grace always exceeds our expectation. We think God's going to do this and he does this. We think God's going to do this and he does this. It always exceeds our expectation. And that's a huge principle in God's economy. But that raises an interesting question. Why did God allow Abraham to intercede for Sodom? I mean, after all, God knew the facts and he already knew what he was going to do. Doesn't that render Abram's request useless? I mean, to say it that way is to come up against the greatest mystery of prayer. I mean, if God already knows what he's going to do, why pray? See, our answers to that question are seen in our text. There's four of them, and I want to give them to you really quickly, and then I'll be done. The first one is this. God allowed Abraham to intercede in order to reveal his mercy. In order to reveal his mercy. Secondly, so that we would know that he, God, takes no pleasure in destroying the wicked. 
It wasn't as if he just wanted to destroy this city. They were sinful. They were wicked. He is a righteous God. He cannot look upon sin. He destroyed the world with a flood. He destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of wickedness. Don't think for a moment that we will not stand in that judgment. It's the same God yesterday, today, forever. The third reason that um, we talk about prayer is Abraham's prayer shows us the power righteous people can have. He's pleading with God. And God was willing to give him what he was asking for. If there's 50 righteous, will you not destroy the city? If there's 50 righteous, I won't destroy the city. If there's 45 and he goes down the list, he's willing to, to show mercy and, and that the power that righteous people can have there is huge. We don't understand the power of influence that we as believers have today. But you have power as a child of the king. If you will get on your knees and pray for those around you, God will answer those prayers. The enemy does not want you to pray. Because when you pray, you unleash God's power. Not that God's power is leashed. But you make it available. And fourthly, I would say it teaches us the value of intercession. I mean, ask yourself this question. Who, who have I interceded for this week? Who have I prayed for the salvation of their soul this week? And I would venture to say that for most of us, it's a big goose egg. But we are surrounded by people that need Jesus Christ in their life. You know, this is the purpose of prayer. I want to I want to share a verse with you. Hebrews 12, 29. Verse 25 says, See to it <laughs> that you do not refuse him who is speaking. See to it that you do not refuse him, capital H, who is speaking. And verse 29 says, for our God is a consuming fire. We don't understand. And we take the fact that God in his patience has not done a lot to take care of those unrighteous souls. And we mistake his patience and we think that he's not going to do anything. But the reality is, is he is a God who keeps his promises. And he is a consuming fire. And God will judge us and this nation 
for our wickedness. See, there's a limit to divine grace and patience. When nations, when cities, when individuals pass the point of redemption, God deals with them in terms of justice. History records accounts of governments and individuals who descended to the level of becoming such a disease that God performed radical surgery and eliminated them from the face of the earth. Sodom and Gomorrah had so degraded themselves that they remain, there remained no hope for their redemption. My prayer is that God would preserve our nation from a catastrophe like that. And the reason I bring this message to you today is because if I don't say something, no one else will. We have got to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. See, our God is a God who communicates. He speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through prayer. He speaks to us through his Holy Spirit. He speaks to us through his people. And so I strongly encourage you to listen and let's hear what God has to say. And let's live lives obedient to him.